We thank you, God, that you are the way maker, you are the miracle worker, you are the light in the darkness, that that is who you are. And we gather now to hear from your word, so we ask that you would direct our attention to it. By your spirit, O God, would you make your word come alive to us as we can't understand it without the guidance of your spirit. So spirit of God, be at work now. We pray that you'd bless us, that you'd open our eyes to truth. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Do you live like God can save anyone? I'm not asking you if you believe that. That's very different. Most people would say, most Christians would say, they believe that God can save anyone. The question I'm asking is, do you live like that? Do you live like God can save anyone? If a devout Muslim moved beside you, or was a colleague at work, a professor of yours at school, likely not at Redeemer, but at other schools, and, and that devout Muslim was there, and you were interacting with them, would you live like God could save them? Would you be praying for them in a way, believing that God could save them? Would you be interacting with them in a way that you would believe that God could save them? Do you believe that God can save anyone, and do you live that way? I mean, think about the people around you right now. Do you believe that about your neighbors, and do you live that way? Do you live that way about the person in your family that seems furthest from the Lord, maybe struggling with some type of addiction, maybe wrestling in some way like that? Do you live that way with someone that you know who intellectually is so far from God because they put up all these barriers in disbelieving about him? Do you believe that God can break into any life and save them? Do you believe that about your parents? Do you believe that about your children? Do you believe that? And then do you live that way? We've had glimpses in the book of Acts of God's all-encompassing grace. Grace has begun to work into the lives of the Samaritans. And then grace extended itself to the life of an Ethiopian eunuch. And God is preparing his people as we go through the book of Acts for the fact that he's about to extend his grace to everyone. That God's grace is going to be extended to the whole world. So if you have your Bibles with me, would you turn to Acts chapter 10? It'll be on the screen, the whole chapter. Um, this week, so this is an interesting part of scripture. This week we see Luke's account of it. Next week we'll hear Peter's words of it, of the same account in chapter 11. And I'll take two different angles on basically the same concept. Verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius the Centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need. He prayed to God regularly. One day at about 3 in the afternoon he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of the attendants. 
He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Jaffa. So we have here a centurion in the Italian regiment. So he's part of the Italian army. He as a centurion is charge of 100 men. You may know Rome was established about 743 BC. So Rome's been around a long time at this point. They're now the world power. And, and this is kind of in reference, the first time in scripture we see references Italy in this way. Um, as that begins to emerge. At one time we were just talking about the Romans. But then eventually... Rome is part of Italy. We're talking about the Italians. It's a transition that's occurring in this season. He's not a full convert. So unlike the Ethiopian eunuch who likely was circumcised, this man is not. The, again, the Assyrians, so the, the Samaritans, again, may have been circumcised people. And so, so what likely is occurring at God's people, the Jewish people are probably thinking, well, God's at work in the lives of people who are more like us than less like us. And God's about to show them that he's about to be at work in everyone's life, regardless of how much like the Jewish people they are or aren't. Probably because of the monotheistic nature of Judaism, right? Over against the pluralism of the Roman or Greco-Roman world, he's been drawn to understanding Jewish custom and culture. Though he hasn't fully bought in, it does describe him as God-fearing, which is a term usually talking about someone who's been quite intrigued by the Jewish faith, He's giving generously to those in fear, he, uh, those in need. He prays to God regularly. So he's come to, to, to a place where whether, whether or not he's quote-unquote a devout Jew because he's uncircumcised, at least to the point in place where he's believing he should be praying to God. And at three in the afternoon, he has a vision. God actually meets with them through an angel, calls out to him and lets him know that he has a plan for him, that he's going to be at work, that the work that God had started in him, granting this interest in him, He's continuing. So verse 9, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. Roofs would be flat in those days. He became hungry. He wanted something to eat, probably indicating he called down asking for a meal. And while the meal was being prepared, he falls into a trance. He has a vision. He sees heaven opening and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice got up and said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter said. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So Peter has a vision. So here we have visions twice. It's called a vision back down in verse 19. It says he fell into a trance earlier. What is a vision? Paul talked about this when we looked at Pentecost, but a vision is often an occurrence from God that happens while you're awake, and God chooses to speak to you very clearly in a supernatural way. In the day of Pentecost, we see from the prophecy out of the Old Testament that God will grant his people, sons and daughters, visions. Now, I don't think that makes it something that's just normally going to occur all the time. But I do believe that there are certain junctures where God's going to grant vision. I mean, you see in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, others granted visions. What are visions? Well, sometimes, typically three things. They grant you a depiction of the future. The person who has the vision is able to see something that has not yet occurred. Sometimes it's a truth about Scripture, uh, and, and a truth about Scripture, in this case, not yet revealed and sometimes it's about ministry and here 
Uh, it's about both uh, a revealed truth of Scripture not yet fully understood and about ministry. Now, I need to say this. That's what's happening in Scripture. In our day, the canon of Scripture is closed. That means that we have the complete Word of God here. So God's never going to give someone a vision to add to the Word of God. I've said this a number of times here. I think this is really important as we understand the role of God's Spirit in our lives. But the Spirit of God will never lead you where the Word of God cannot take you. So when someone comes to me and says that God's told them something, I'm like, okay, let's see if it's aligned with God's Word. Right? So sometimes I've had people tell me, you know, God's actually told me, you know, some guy comes to me and says that I should move in with my girlfriend. I'm like, really? Like before they're married, right? I'm like, that is not at all aligned with God's word. God would not tell you that. It's not something God would ever tell you to do. And so sometimes I have people that come to me telling me things that they say God has told them that they should do. And it's not of the Lord. It can't be. So I'll just say it again. I think it's a really important principle. Like God's spirit will never lead you where the word cannot take you. And so I believe today God's spirit may reinforce a teaching of scripture through a vision, may reveal to someone something about the future, may grant them uh, to know a ministry that God has in store for them. Now, I, I want you to know this happens three times. So in Peter's life, this is a very common theme. He denies Jesus three times. He's restored by Jesus three times, right? And just like Peter said to the Lord, pre-resurrection, I'll, I'll never deny you. He says to the Lord, I can't eat, I can't eat this. Because everything about him is saying, like, I can't do this. It's against all that is my upbringing, my culture, my understanding of Scripture. And God says, don't call anything impure that I have made clean. And he does it three times. Now, interesting enough, Marcio made this point at staff being this week. Um, Peter is already staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. What does a tanner do? Well, a tanner kills animals in order to make what he needs at, at the place, right? Like, like he's making objects, clothing, shoes, belts. And so as that's all occurring, maybe tapestry, like stuff, tarps. Um, and so as he's doing that, he becomes unclean. So Peter's already staying, though Simon the Tanner is a Jew, at the place of a Jewish person who's engaged in a trade that the Old Testament would say is unclean because of the contamination of blood. And so God is already moving Peter along as he's staying in that place and preparing him for what he's about to do in the lives of the Jewish people. Now, as Peter's pondering this, he begins to think about this. This is verse 17. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Go up and down, uh, get up, go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them. I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? Then Peter replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guest. So Peter is getting something here. Because that's not what he would have ever done before. You see, the Old Testament law, we're going to read in a minute that Peter says it says that they're not to associate Jews and Gentiles. The reason that Peter says that, and you can read that in the Pseudepigrapha, that's extra biblical uh, writings, the, the 
you know, hundreds of pages, thousands, it does thousands. Mishnah, it's, it's bedtime reading if you ever need it. Um, and, and, uh, and it's Jewish literature written through the, through the ages, right? A lot of the Mishnah is more kind of in the intertestamental period, same with the Apocrypha, which is it's part of the Catholic canon of Scripture, but not ours. And it's, but it's good Jewish literature, even though it's not, not canonized, right? It, it lets you know what's going on in Jewish history. It's, they're very clear that, that in their legalism, which is where the Pharisees come from, because Pharisees obviously aren't a sect of the Old Testament. They emerge in the intertestamental period um, and the Sadducees. That, that they need to add laws to the law to make sure that no one breaks the law, right? That's what we did years ago. If you don't dance, you can't have sex, you know? So Baptists didn't dance 30 years ago. If you don't have a sip of alcohol, you can't get drunk. So alcohol, we'd sign that, you know, you'd never drink alcohol 30 years ago. This church did that, you know, four years before I got here. To sign on to be a member, you would sign on that you wouldn't go to movies, you wouldn't dance, and you wouldn't drink. You wouldn't have alcohol in your home. Um, and so what happens is, is, that, is that churches did that, but the Jewish people did that. So if a Gentile who doesn't have the same customary laws as a Jewish person is touching things that are unclean and eating things that are unclean and their house is full of things that are unclean, then if you, a Gentile, end up associating with them, you, by association, become unclean. And so you don't associate with them. And you assume that God's saving work is simply for your people because the Messiah is promised to you. So here, Peter invites them into his house because he's beginning to understand what God is doing. You see, as we see this through Scripture, God's beginning to reveal to his people he's going to be at work in everyone. It's why you see the work first among the Samaritans, which are half Jewish, half, Samar uh, half Assyrians, and then in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch. And so all of a sudden, Peter's paradigm is being shattered. His ideology, his whole way of understanding. I mean, as he's read the Old Testament and understand who Jesus is, he's convinced that Jesus, the Messiah, is simply for the Jews and a few other people. He's not yet understanding the Great Commission. He's not yet understanding what Jesus is talking about when he's for everyone. He's not understanding the interaction with the Canaanite woman. You may remember that. He's not understanding all that God was doing through Christ yet. This is progressively happening. And he's having an aha moment. We've all had those aha moments. Right? I, I had one this week. Right? Sometimes they're just part of life. They're just practical things in life. Right? So after my confession last Sunday about my workout routine not helping the way I anticipated, I decided to Google healthy workout routines. And I learned. I, I had this aha moment. Push, pull, legs. Didn't know. Had no clue. And I realized that though I was going to the gym four times a week and I would use kind of six different pieces of apparatus, I would do three sets at each piece of apparatus, I would do ten reps at each of those, with each of those sets, that all I was doing was pushing. I needed to pull. It was a great aha moment for me. So I decided I'm going to do two push days and two pull days. So Wednesday was my first pull day. So, sorry, this is it's just a dumb story. I went to the gym... Looked around the gym and thought, let's find things I can pull on, literally, right? Like machines, apparatus, stuff that... So I tried a few machines, and finally I'm like, what else can you pull on? Like, and I see a chin-up bar, and I think, let's do it. So I take the two steps up, and I leap up in the air, and I grab the pull-up bar, and I can't do a thing. I like, all of my might. I've been working out for like three years off and on, maybe more off than on, but I think more on than off, and I can't do a thing. I, I can now bench a fair bit of weight, and I can't do nothing. 
I'm just hanging there in the air like, oh. And so I let myself down, and there's a step there. I don't know what this step does, and I let it down. It's connected to the weights. I think maybe this will help. And I hop back on, and I jump up, and it doesn't. It doesn't help at all. It might supposed to be. I don't know what weight to put it on. I got nothing. I'm not moving at all. And now, like maybe the worst thing that can ever happen in a gym moment happens, I now have people standing around watching me. And if people are standing around watching you, you're doing well, it's okay. In this moment, it's not okay. And I'm like, Lord, it's pretty early in the morning here. Why are they here? Like, why are they here? And why are they waiting for this machine? Like, there's 10 of us upstairs. There's 150 machines. Why here? Why now? And then, I, I thought that was the worst moment. It gets worse. The one kid who's 19 says, sir. I'm like, oh, do you need some help? Lord, why, why? And I'm like, no, I'm okay. And the other kid says, it doesn't look like you're okay. <laughs> so I went home and I told Amy the story. And I said, I'm going to learn to do chin-ups. And she said, maybe, maybe not at the gym. <laughs> she said, you, sh you shouldn't do that for a while. Um, but I, I had this aha moment this week, right? Push, pull, legs. I remember Calvin. Calvin, I saw you somewhere. You sitting, there you are. Remember, I remember Calvin a few years ago. Calvin, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I remember this distinctly, right? God had been working in Calvin's life. Calvin grew up in a Buddhist home, right? Do you know God saves Buddhists? You know, we have two young men here who've been saved from Buddhist homes in our congregation. Others that we believe God's at working in their lives in come to Christ through our ministry. And I remember being God at work in Calvin's life, and, and I went out with Calvin to talk to him about this. And Derek may remember this because he thought he was going to get fired. And I went out with, yeah, he remembers now. And I... Your job was never at risk. And I went out with Calvin, and I'm talking about salvation. And Calvin's talking about sin, and sin being something uh, that you do against God. So sin is lying, sin is stealing. And I say, well, Calvin, sin is more than that. Like, sin is actually even prioritizing anything over and against God. So Calvin's a really smart guy, really high grades, and he's also an amazing athlete and, like, an Ontario champion in track and stuff. And and if you ever want to see, I don't know if you still have on your phone, pictures of a long jump that you don't think is possible, ask him. It's insane. And so I'm like, Calvin, uh, uh, like if you prioritize track over and against God, that is sin. If you prioritize your grades over against God, that is sin. He's sitting across the table at me, and he does this. And I'm like, because I'm old, I'm like, I don't know what that means. I have no clue what you just did. And he's like, mind-blowing. And I'm like, has Derek never told you this? He's like, no. I said, let's go back and tell Derek what you just discovered. It'll make him nervous for his job. And so we went back to tell Derek. I said, Derek, who's discipling this young man? It's not supposed to be me. He's in youth ministry. What's going on? Anyway, so, so what happens is, is there are moments in life, both practically, push-pull legs, and spiritually, sin isn't just when I actually offend God with lying or cheating or stealing, whatever it would be, but it's also making anything taking it and putting it in the place of God, prioritizing anything in my life instead of God, it could be spiritual, that you just have this awakening. And so Peter has this awakening, but it's about to shift his entire ideology. It's going to shift everything. Everything. It's about to change the way he thinks about the entire kingdom and gospel. So the next day, Peter starts out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along, the following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. 
while talking with Peter, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent me? So Peter just wants to know, Cornelius, why did you send me? Why did God send an angel to you to get me? Verse 30, Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. You see respect for Cornelius. He doesn't know how to revere a God, a man of God like Peter who's coming. And he bows down, and Peter's like, no, no, no. No. He said, I'm just a man like you. Peter explains his revelation. Cornelius explains his question as to why he sent for him. And now we're all here, Cornelius says, in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. He's invited all his friends and family. A godly man's coming. He's going to explain to us how we can understand God, how we can understand heaven, how we can understand eternity. I mean, Cornelius has kind of figured out how far, how long it will take Peter to go or his friends, sorry, to go to get Peter and come back. And he's gathered a crowd to wait. And, and if you didn't catch this as I read through this next part, this is the Gentile Pentecost. Right? The Jewish Pentecost is earlier in the book of Acts. This is Gentile Pentecost. This is what God is doing here. So Peter begins to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You want to know, there's all kinds of theory out there right now around race and culture. Right? You can read all kinds of volumes on critical race theory. And in reading those volumes, all kinds of disagreements about what it is now. How it started out, where it's ended up. Um, volumes on it. And, and there's all kinds of dialogue about race and culture and, and what that looks like. Can I, can I tell you who's got the corner on this? God does. God has created everyone. Is that not good news? Everyone on this planet, everyone you set your eyes on, everyone you know, everyone you hear about is created in the image of God. Everyone. Equally. Across this planet. There is no room whatsoever for racism in the kingdom of God. None. God is also saving people. Not only has he made people from every language, custom, culture, and tribe, in every language, custom, culture, and tribe, he's saving people from every language, custom, and culture, and tribe. And so when I hear Christians that are, that are being racist, culturally insensitive, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. God's got to do a work in you. Because he's saving people that you're mocking. He's loving people that you're making fun of. You see, the world should be looking to us who should be looking to God for understanding of cultural reconciliation and racial reconciliation. Because the kingdom of God's got the corner on this. It's God's thing. It's what God loves to do. And Peter just, he just pronounces it here. Just in this moment, he realizes the Messiah wasn't just for the Jews. Promised to them, but not just for them. 
The Messiah was for all of humanity. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are all witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by everyone, but by witnesses that God had chosen, by us who ate and drank with him, again giving authenticity to the resurrection, that he was in a real body, after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he is the one whom God anointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, and everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sin through his name. So Peter, just in this little speech, explains the gospel. This is, this is a great gospel-centered speech in Scripture. If you want to read just a, a wonderful gospel-centered speech in Scripture, this is one of them. And it's different than the one on the day of Pentecost. Similar elements, life and ministry of Jesus, death, resurrection, talking about him as judge. But at that, when the people say, what should we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Here, what does he say? All the prophets testify, verse 43, about him that everyone, anyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sin through his name. Well, what is belief? Everyone believes in something. When you believe in Jesus, you're taking whatever you put your hope in, whatever you put your trust in, and you're transferring that belief to Jesus as your hope and trust. You're now no longer believing in your ability to maybe it's make money. Maybe it's your ability and your skill set. Maybe it's your ability and your hobby. You're no longer believing in whatever that is. And you're transferring your allegiance, your alliance in belief to Jesus Christ. You're believing in him. Believing in him. And you receive what? Forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness for prioritizing whatever it is you thought you should be living for so that now you can live for Jesus. Well, while Peter was speaking these words, verse 44, the Holy Spirit came on everyone who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So just like on the day of Pentecost, the apostles were able to speak in tongues and able to share the gospel in the languages of the various people that were there, this time... As Peter's speaking, the Spirit of God falls on them, and they're able to speak in tongues. The people there. See the difference? And why does that happen? Because this is the Spirit of God authenticating for the people like Peter and the Jewish people, notice it says, that are circumcised, that are with him, that God is saving the Gentiles too. He wants everyone to know with certainty and clarity that Jesus has come to seek and save anyone who believes. Is that not great news? That includes your Muslim neighbor or colleague or professor. That includes the atheist that you know who says God doesn't exist. 
That includes your family member that is lost in their sin-entrenched life and choosing it over him, over God. It includes everyone. Do you live like that? Do you live like God can save everyone? Anyone? Or do you discount people based on conversations you've had, based on actions? Just a quick aside. Maybe this is what Jesus was referring to back in Matthew 16. Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and after he declares uh, that, that he's the Messiah, Jesus says, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. So there's a play on words here because Peter can mean rock, but I don't believe Jesus is referring to Peter as the rock. I believe it's the truth that he's the Messiah, the Christ, that is the rock. But then he says this, I will give you the keys of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And it's interesting after that statement that God chooses to use Peter as the messenger on the day of Pentecost to the Jews and as the messenger on this day with Cornelius' house and family at the Pentecost for the Gentiles. Because maybe that's what he's referring to, at least in part because of this. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked Peter to stay for a few days. So they're baptized. They get out the tank, they baptize, and, uh, and Peter stays and teaches. So I want you to note three things as I close. Number one, the cross is for everyone. The cross is for everyone. There is no ideology. There is no philosophy. It doesn't exist on this planet that is more welcoming than Christianity. Well, people will say it's exclusive. No, it's, it's, it's inclusive. It's for anyone who believes. Anyone who believes. Anyone who believes can be a Christian. Is that not good news? It is the most inclusive way of thinking on the planet because it's for anyone who believes and it's for people from every culture i mean i am so excited that in this building we couldn't do this in the old building i mean i, I, mean, I know the Karen met with us there but not at the same extent i am so excited that in this building we're going to have three congregations meeting is that not a wonderful use of a facility that god's granted us that together we can be doing this and our kids can be together. I mean, if your kids come on a Tuesday night to kids zone or to youth, you know that as they show up, there's a group from the community, there's a group from our church, and there's a whole group from the Karen congregation. And soon we're going to add to that a group from the Brazilian Portuguese congregation. And, and together we'll, we'll, be, we'll be working in God's kingdom. You know, the next step is we're asking people from the Karen congregation to be volunteering with us. And, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, we want their children to be able to look at the leaders at a thing like Kids Zone and be able to know that they have godly people in their own congregation they look up to. And we want our children to be able to look up at the leaders and know that the godly people they can look up to aren't just from James North. But they can have been raised in some other place in some other culture and lived in refugee camps for years. And God is at work in their lives too. I remember one Sunday as... I was meeting with the young current men, and I've shared some with this before, but, and I was asking them about this volunteering and teaching some of them to teach the Bible and, you know, encouraging them to do so. And, and even like on a Friday night where 
Jordy has a team from Redeemer that's giving leadership and saying to some of them, hey, I'd like some of you to start to teach on a Friday night. And they said, Dwayne, we could never teach in front of the people from Redeemer or McMaster. We're just Karen. We're just Karen. I'm like, that is not true. That's not true. You are children of the Most High God whom he has saved. At the foot of the cross, there is this incredible equalizer. You are now heirs of God. You are co-heirs with Christ. We are brothers and sisters together in the kingdom. You are not just Karen. You are part of the kingdom of God, and you have so much to offer. And see, our lives need to be lived like that, that people around us see that we appreciate when someone from whatever tradition they're coming from comes to faith in Christ. And it's why I believe in Scripture, God doesn't give sample business meetings. He doesn't give sample order of services. He talks about different distinctives in a worship service, but he doesn't give a sample order of service because it allows his worship and he allows his churches to operate within every culture and custom and language and tribe as long as it's honoring to him according to Scripture. He's granted a whole bunch of freedom. So we have so much to learn from each other. Is it wrong if I go to a Karen service and, and, and the person who prays, prays for 30 minutes? No. Listen, when you don't speak Karen, it's, it's, it's daunting, to be honest, when someone prays for 30 minutes and you're not sure when they've said amen. You open your eyes, you look around, no one's eyes are open, you close your eyes, right? And you're at the front. I used to be at the front all the time. Now I sit down and you look around, you're like, all right, no, not yet. Or you look around and some of the young people are also looking around because they're wondering when the prayer is over. They understand the language. They're just hoping it's over sooner than later. And, and listen, I'm half kidding, guys, but you know I'm not half kidding because um, we've had these conversations. And I look up and they look at me and they're like, pastor. And I'm like, oh, shoot, close my eyes. Um, but he's saving people from our language, custom, culture, and tribe. That's what God is doing. And there's no just Karen. They're going to be the leaders of our church one day. You know that, right? Part of them. They're going to be qualified to be elders and deacons and ministry chairs, just like we are. Because God's at work. Secondly, it's a hard lesson to learn. That to live like God will save everyone. Listen to this from Galatians 2. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, the Apostle Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Pretty strong language. Because he stood condemned, again, strong language. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So Peter got this. But when they arrived, he began to draw back, separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And he didn't get it. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, and by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... Paul is accusing Peter here of unsound doctrine. I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? It's easy to believe, it's harder to live. Example right there in scripture, right? Peter, by Paul, is spoken of as someone who's condemned, hypocritical, and not in line with the truth of the gospel. That's pretty strong from one apostle to another, isn't it? And I hope it shows you the humanness of the apostles. They're not Jesus. They're not. And so here you see Paul correcting Peter and saying, Peter, God's the one who showed this to you. Peter, you're the one who had the vision. Peter, what's happened? And sometimes in a morning like this, you can become really convinced that, yeah, that's right. I need to love 
on my Muslim neighbor. I need to love on the person that is in opposition to the gospel. I need to love on that family member. And then three weeks out, it's like so hard, isn't it? It's just tough. They say mean things. They act cruel. And that may not be the case. Because not all non-believers say mean things or are cruel. They just stand in defiance of the gospel. And then sometimes we say the mean things and are cruel. And we don't show the love of Christ. And so in a moment like this, we can become convinced of this truth and then three weeks later live like we never heard it. And we all do that. It happened to Peter. And so what do we do? And I close with this. Spirit of God, would you take the truth of your word and just embed it in my heart? You're in me. I, I can't do this without you. So Spirit of God, would you take the truth of your word and embed it in my heart so that I not only believe it, but I live it out. So I not only think it, but I act upon it. So it's not only something that I talk about it, but it's something that people see me doing in the way that I live. And so then you begin to look at the people around you and you start with prayer. And maybe the prayer needs to start like this. Before you even start with God, would you save them? Maybe you need to start with God, would you change my heart toward them? And then God, would you save them? God, would you open up doors into their lives? Jason, you guys can come up. And we just begin to pray like that. And then we begin to live like that. You see, Peter got this. We'll take a look at this again next week. And then as we see in Galatians, totally fell back against it because it was tough. Because people were saying, Peter, what are you doing? Peter, they need to be circumcised. Peter, they need this. Peter, what about the dietary laws? Peter... And Peter fell into the trap of the pressure of public persuasion, like we all do. Can I, can I just share this and then I'm done? Do you know how easy it is for God to save the person that you've thought of this morning? As easy it was for God to save you. And if you don't believe that this morning then you're thinking of yourself way more highly than you ought to. And you're not understanding the grace and power of God. If you help somehow think it's going to take more of God's grace to save someone else than it did you, then you don't understand your sin and you don't understand God's grace. If you somehow think that it's going to take more of God to do that, to work in their life, than it did in your life, then you don't really understand the gospel. You don't. And you don't understand the nature and character of God. You don't. Because God can save anyone, anywhere, any place, any time. And it's something we shouldn't just believe. It's something we should live. Because it's true. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that it's easy to fall into the trap of believing that somehow we were easier to save. Or somehow, though we would never say this out loud, there was something about us that was worthy to be saved. Over and against the fact that you just delight in saving. And you gloriously saved us. And God, may we say, see that 
the losses of the people around us is the same as our lostness was. And that the grace that they need is the exact same grace that we needed. And that they need the hope that we have in you. And so God, may you take the truths of these texts that you are longing to save people from everywhere and anywhere who believe in you and call on your name. And may we live them out in front of us as we look at the people around us. We pray this powerfully in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.